Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And today we have the most extraordinary and special guest. I'm just going to read out actually what's on the paper in front of me because we know him as an old friend. Don't big me up too much. No, look, I'm literally going to. It says Adrian Charles Edmondson. Named after Prince Charles. <laughs> is an English? Is that true? Yeah. Well, I was. When was he born? No. Listen, I'm. I'm literally. I'm literally reading it out. Eh? Yes. Yes. Carry on. Is an English? Is I'll an, find out who I am. Yes. Is an English actor, comedian, musician, writer, and television presenter, writer, and broadcaster at the BBC. So, is That's there any hat you don't wear, Aid? Good grief. <laughs> um, I'm looking into carpentry. If you if you were going to. Dis- <laughs> If you were going to describe yourself, which, if any of those, would you pick to describe yourself? I used to like that advert Bruce Forsyth used to do, where he used to say, I'm not a comedian, I'm an entertainer. Yeah. And I think that's what I am. I think I'm an entertainer. Yeah, that's good. Through all those kind of sort of passages, I just try and entertain people. Did you start off thinking, I want to entertain people? Were you a funny child or were you great at school? My dad was a teacher. And he worked for the forces. And uh, we moved around an awful lot. And in my first four years of primary school, I played the Angel Gabriel four times in a row at different places. (laughs) And I got really good at it. (laughs) And by the end of the last one, I knew that that's all I really wanted to do. You were chosen because of your cherubic qualities, do you think? Yes, I was chosen because of the Bible. The Bible chose me. I am the chosen one. <laughs> and did, when did you settle? When did you settle down somewhere, or did you go on travelling all through your childhood? Uh, we we travelled forever. We travelled Cyprus, Bahrain, and Uganda. We did. Gosh, I was eventually fobbed off and put into boarding school. But um, yes, they didn't really come back until I left school. <laughs> It sounds rather cruel, and actually it was. <laughs> you obviously remember a lot about your childhood. Do you remember Bahrain? I do. I remember them. I mean, I'm, I'm writing my autobiography as we sit here. So we wait till then, do we? <laughs> well, no, it's just it's just it's all fresh in my mind. Mm. So, uh, yes, I, I remember them all very, very clearly. We always thought that my dad was a, a magnet for trouble. <laughs> when he first got the bug to go abroad. He was a teacher. He, he thought, uh, oh, you can go abroad. And he was a geography teacher, so it oh, sort of suited him. And he, he looked at Egypt. He thought, no, we won't go to Egypt because they've just had the Suez crisis. So we went to Cyprus where Aoka, I don't remember Aoka, a sort of paramilitary mm. group, Archbishop Makarios and all that lot, mm. uh, were yeah. kicking off big time. My dad had a gun. <laughs> God. I had a gun that he kept under the seat of the car. And we were sort of evacuated from there six years later. Then we went to Bahrain, and they were also sort of a bit knocked about the British presence, so they kicked us out a couple of years later. Then we went to Uganda, and, of course, Idi Amin came in, and he didn't really like anyone. <laughs> uh, so everyone got kicked out. How long were your parents there? 
Because that was that was a, quite a difficult time in Uganda, wasn't it? Uganda was four years. Yeah, mm. it was quite hard. We got shot at. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was quite there was it was quite extreme. I laugh about it, but um, people saw bodies being sort of dumped in the Nile and. God. We lived in a weird time, didn't we? Mm. I'm getting no, off the subject. You're, you're literally not, because this is the subject we want to go on. What but is the subject? Th- threading in through, I'm just about to say, threading in yeah. through this subject, Aid, is love of music. Mm. Ah, and, um, yes. And the, the programmes we do, which are called Joanna and the Maestro, yes. are mostly talking about classical music, but actually about music in general. Yeah. Can you remember, you obviously, I mean, you're so much younger than me, that you didn't have to have a wind-up gramophone. So how did your parents listen to, how did you first know you were listening to, let's say, classical music, or did you listen to the home service or the light programme? Because we travelled around a lot. We had one of those record players which was like a suitcase. You know, the lid came off Mm. and it was a mono and you put the lid somewhere and connect it to the other bit and uh, and then put the records on. And this is why I have a difficult relationship with classical music because my dad was quite strict. And um, he constantly thought I needed improving. And to that end, we used to have to sit down every Sunday morning and play chess whilst listening to classical music. (laughs) (laughs) And he had a very limited repertoire. He only had about 10, 15 records. Do you remember what they were? Absolutely. We had a couple of Beethoven symphonies, Eroica and Pastoral and uh, Scheherazade. And who wrote uh, The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba? Handel. Yeah. Yeah, we had that. And then we had one weird one. We, we had uh, Bizet's Carmen, mm. which was a sort, sort of at odds with the rest of the what, collection. What, the, the, the whole opera? Aid? I think so, yeah. That's what I remember. Tari adora. <laughs> um, did, he, did he ever talk about it? Did he explain it? No. And... I don't think he understood it. Do you think he loved it, though? I think he wanted to appear civilised. And that was the reason for it. I was in a car going to see the lights turn on at Blackpool once. Uncle Douglas was taking us. And uh, my two older cousins, Liz and Janet, were there. And they were very keen on the Beatles. They were sort of young teenagers. I was about seven. And my sister was about ten. And... um, they started going on and on and on about the Beatles. And uh, then they asked Hillary who her favourite act was. And uh, she didn't really know because we'd been in Cyprus all these years without any exposure. But she, she managed to get away with Nana Muscuri. And then they turned to me and they said, well, who's your favourite? Thinking I'd say, I don't know, Freddie and the Dreamers or something. And I said, Beethoven. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was the only music I'd been played. They laughed all the way to Blackpool and back. <laughs> That's a real imposition, isn't it? Did you ever try and fight your way back? Because you and I had a conversation, I don't know how long ago, 15 years ago or something, Yeah. when we talked about big choral works, which you said had yeah. begun to intrigue you, and you were working your way through them. I got into requiems. I like requiems. <laughs> I don't know why. Mozart's requiem. When I was doing a Waiting for Godot, in the West End. I was playing Estragon, who's a sort of um, tramp who's lost, waiting for something to happen in his life. And bizarrely, to get into character for this tramp, I used to listen particularly to uh, Dies Irae, Mozart's um, Dies Irae from his Requiem, which is very kind of 
loud and bombastic and probably the exact opposite of what Estragon the character is. But it somehow helped me get in the mood. It takes your head somewhere else, doesn't it? I hope this early listening to music didn't turn you against the Eroica, written by Beethoven, which is one of my favourite, favourite things. I knew we were going to talk about this thing, and uh, I put them on this morning. Uh, uh, sort of <laughs> swirl of confusing emotions passed through me. But it, it is pretty darn good, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to have to shake it all off and give it a proper listen on my own terms. Aid, you and Jennifer... Adrian Edmondson is married to Jennifer Saunders. You and... I thought it was Dawn Friends. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> You've got three daughters. Did you, did you introduce them to music or did you let them find music or did you say, don't listen to classical music or do listen to this or I've loved that or did you play your favourite bands, your favourite pop music to them? Well, I think, I mean, because we live in Devon and work in London, we did a lot of going up and down the A303 throughout the kids' childhood and uh, it was always a tussle to find out what to put on the CD player. Mm. We went through a lot of kind of children's favourites. But then the sort of happy ground we found was Cooler Shaker and Crowded House, <laughs> if you know those acts. Cooler Shaker have a song about <laughs> driving down the 303 in a Mercedes-Benz called 303, <laughs> which is exactly what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, the, the family sort of bonded over that. And there's a great line in it that goes, uh, and with all my friends in my Mercedes Benz on the 303. And we were with our friends in a Mercedes Benz on the 303. You see, it's interesting you talk about that early experience, because a gentler hand has to be the way, doesn't it, for parents to introduce their children to anything. If it's just around, as, as it was in Joe's life and mine, yeah. if it's just around, then it becomes part of the furniture. I've always been convinced that no one has to like anything that's put in front of them. You know, you, you're not being forced to like something. The best thing is to be just a little bit curious. And if someone's really enthusiastic about a piece of art or a piece of architecture or a piece of music, then one's interest is aroused. Don't you think? I mean, yeah. I don't think anything should be force-fed. That's the thing. Yeah. I think classical music is badly served by the radio. Go on, go on. I think those kind of popular kind of... Um, yeah. Classic FM and type thing. They kind of present it as if it's Gardner's question time. Do you know what I mean? There's something cosy and middle class about it. Mm. Mm. Whereas I think if people really got interested in it 
I mean, Mozart's a fascinating bloke, isn't he? Yeah. He's sort of more punk than punk. He certainly was. But people aren't allowed to approach him in that way. They, we've, we've got all those silly little busts of composers, you know, little things where they look very important and then they're, they're gazing into the middle distance and they, they look like men of principle. But a lot of them weren't. And I think if people were kind of sold them in a different way, that less cosy kind of way, yeah. then things might kind of branch out. Yes. There's an awful lot of people saying, now now for some relaxing (laughs) classical music. And you think, is that what it's for? Yeah, I know. Was it what the writers were thinking? I know. Oh, I I want want you to feel nice and relaxed. (laughs) I can't think of anyone who who works in music who wants anyone to be relaxed. You only want to excite people. Yeah. At least emotionally or... Or even sometimes physically, you know. It's, yep. um, you don't want them to dream off to sleep. <laughs> yeah. But, Aid, you clearly had an early interest in music, even if you rebelled slightly against the classic. You are clearly musical and had musicianly qualities. Did you learn to play an instrument when you were little? I am the uh, master of none, but I, I could probably get grade one in about 400 different instruments. <laughs> <laughs> did you get bored with that particular instrument and move to another, or did you just like to have a small facility with them? Well, this is, this is becoming all about my dad. But then I found out writing an autobiography that your life does actually become all about your dad. And um, I don't know why he didn't encourage me to play instruments. I brought home a euphonium once. I was at school in Bradford at the time and, um, you know, Yorkshire, brass bands. Yeah. I brought it home and he absolutely loathed it. Mm. <laughs> and he, he forced me to go to the garage to play it. And it was sort of in the middle of winter. And, you know, your fingers get frozen. I just gave up. He thought the instrument basically profiled a part of life that he didn't want you to be interested in. Yes. Who's that conductor who said brass bands are, are all right in their place Outside and a very long way away. <laughs> well, it's actually a very funny line, but, but I hate that. Yeah. Because one of my favourite films is Brassed Off. Yeah. It's stunning playing. Yeah. And honestly, that whole culture produced brass players of such high quality. Yeah. Amazing. Have you kept the euphonium? I have got a euphonium, but I picked it up when I had a, a comedy band with Neil Innes and... Uh, <laughs> We used to play a couple of German songs in it, and I just kind of umpired along in the background. Was this band the Bad Shepherds? Was it that one? Unfortunately, it wasn't. It no, was, it's not. Uh, it's a word you can't really say on radio. Oh God! I'll say it, and you can always cut it out. Okay. It was the Idiot Bastard Band, <laughs> is what we were called. We played a number of sort of Bonzo-type songs and some of our originals, and we uh, had a lot of guests in. When you say our originals, did you write music? Did you write songs and music? We, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've always written songs. I had a band at school, rock band, and then uh, I created Bad News, which is a sort of um, a strand of the comic strip presents about a heavy metal band. And we, you know, we did a couple of episodes of that and we went on tour and it got quite kind of big. And I don't know, I've always had a sort of (laughs) dalliance with bands. I actually eventually, having been a fan for years and years and years, I eventually joined the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. I never knew that. There was a great reunion concert. Vivian Stanchel, the, the original singer, died in the 90s sometime. And um, in the early 2000s, there was a reunion concert and a number of established fans, uh, myself, Stephen Fry, Bill Bailey, Phil Jupitus, Paul Merton, all filled in for Viv. We loved it so much, me and Phil, that we went on tour with them. 
And then after the tour, we were, we were invited into the band, which is a kind of extraordinary thing. And I eventually got to play trumpet with the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Admittedly, it's on a track called Jazz Delicious Hot Disgusting Cold, uh, which is about really bad playing. <laughs> and uh, I excelled. One day I'm going to learn to read music. <laughs> can you not read me? I can't read music. Can you really not read music? I can really slowly. Yeah. One note at a time. Chords are a bit difficult. Do you play by ear? I do. I mean, do you pick things out? Or do you play You play the piano a bit, don't you? play the piano. Well, I thump away at a chord with a sort of bass note. I think I'm most proficient on stringed things. Mm. Quite good at playing guitar. You played the mandolin once, didn't yes, you? Yes, mandolin. And I still play my mandolin most days. And uh, that's mostly jigs and reels. That's complicated, Aid. That is quite complicated, isn't it? Well, it's a bit like bark, I suppose, isn't it? But um, yeah, Exactly. But they're, they're all patterns, you know. But complicated. Yeah. And presumably you'd learn all the jigs and reels exactly like the Irish fiddlers and banjo players. You actually learnt it by ear. Yeah. You listen to someone else do it and then you copy. Yeah. Extraordinary. My first baptism of fire, knowing of your musical things, was when doing Absolutely Fabulous and Wheels on Fire, the sort of signature tune to that, you sang on that. Yeah. It was written by fabulous Bob Dylan. And originally I heard it long, long ago in the late 60s, I think. I did. I didn't even know you were a singer. You did. It was fantastic, Aid. hadn't been all these other things, might you have been a musician full-time, do you think? When I went to university, there was only, um, you know, I was looking for a DOSS's course. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the one I found was drama. Had there been a DOSS's course in music, I think it would have been a harder choice, but there wasn't. So I sort of went that way. <laughs> I know I know it's humorous, but a DOSS's course with a music course. I've talked about this in another podcast. Well, the, the course isn't hard, is it? The course isn't hard. The course is fun. It's not like you have to sort of learn quadratic equations or anything <laughs> or indeed do anything important in life. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's life is ever in your hands. <laughs> it's not like being an engineer. Or a doctor. No, it's not. But And also, aid acting, you don't have to sort of learn anything. Most of us who become actors can speak and move about, and that's all you have to be able to do, and maybe learn lines yeah. to a certain level. Not many of them do that. <laughs> no, no, they don't. <laughs> and nowadays you can get pods in your ears and just be told what to say and do. Yeah. But musicians have to be able to cut it. You've got to be oh, able to do Lord, it. Oh, here we go. No, you, I'm always... Because I believe that all actors, and my wife is putting on a face, that all actors <laughs> somehow... <laughs> <laughs> dig deeply and find this thing that produces magic. 
No, you, you, you give me a break. I know actors don't like teaching acting. Well, some might. But the point is, there is something that all actors recognise in another great actor. And I'm damned if I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. But you do. I think that's the problem. It's, it's, well, I don't think anyone can work it out. It's unquantifiable. Mm. Some people have it and some people don't. You know, people try and teach it and there's, it doesn't work very often, does it? And the number of really good actors is quite small. Very small. But there are lots of us who just crowd around the back and shout our, shout our lines yeah. and get work. Yeah. Well, that's me anyway. There's lots of room for them. <laughs> plenty of room and plenty of work. Aid, you're so quick and so smart and so intelligent. Is learning lines, is getting stuff into your head quite easy and quite quick? You don't have to slog at it. Well, the older I get, the harder it gets, I think. I've kind of developed a new technique of learning lines. Go on, tell me what it is. I stomp round Hyde Park, which is our perimeter of four miles, the script in my hand, and just shout it at the trees. <laughs> uh, uh, and bizarrely, I'm not the most nutty thing in the park. <laughs> and I just kind of repeat it endlessly and endlessly and endlessly and endlessly until it hardly means anything. And eventually, if you keep repeating it, it eventually comes back as something else. That's, that's my only technique. All those years of training. But the French call rehearsal répétition. That's what they say is repetition. That's what rehearsal is. Yeah. And if you can get it, if you can repeat it so often, it's under your belt. So when it's your time to speak it, you don't even have to think because the muscular memory, both of your brain and your mouth, which is why you speaking it out loud, is all important. Seeing it in your eyes is one thing, reading it, reading it silently on a train. But actually saying it, your mouth and tongue remember it. And if you say a particularly complicated phrase enough times, your mouth and teeth say, oh, I got that one. So when it comes up, out it trots beautifully. But it is a bit of a slog, isn't it? It's like exercising, really. Well, it's quite similar to playing jigs and reels on a, on a mandolin, to be honest, because mm -hmm. eventually your fingers remember it yeah. and you can start to talk while you're doing it to other people about what you're having for your tea. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You separate a bit of your brain from the bit that's doing that bit. That's right. And that bit's looking after itself. I think that's what you need to do as an actor with lines, isn't it? Exactly. You're freed yeah. from the burden of memory because you've got them yeah. under your belt, rather like Judy Dench, who has got so much of Shakespeare under her ribs, as it were, mm. that she can just produce it completely and then she can interpret it because she's got it. Nigel Plainer and I have just written a play. Yeah. And it's going to be on at the park later this autumn. What is it? There's a couple of actors in the trailer on a glacier on a volcano in Iceland mm -hmm. <laughs> and things aren't going well. But one of them has a problem with memory in that all he can do is remember old lines. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know where they're from. <laughs> he can't remember the context. But he, can, he can remember old lines. They keep pouring out of him, but he doesn't know where he, where he went to sleep last night. <laughs> A, do you like directing? You've directed some music videos and things, but the Pogues and people like this. I've directed you, Joanna. Oh, tell me more. Why? Yeah. In that one-off mirrorball thing. It was a sort of offshoot of Ab Fab. Exactly. Some fairly faded characters living in Covent Garden. And Jennifer was an ex-dancer or ex-singer, and I was a, a failed, op trying trying to be a singer. And it was all a it bunch was of fairly basically sort of a kind characters. of fantasy episode of Ab Fab is what I th is how it, I think in of it. In a funny way, it was. I think, I think it? she needed to somehow explore something else before she could go back to Ab Fab. But anyway, I directed yes. that. I directed a few things around that time, and um, I did enjoy directing those kind of pop promos. But I got bored of it. 
It's a lot of meetings. I directed a feature film once. Uh, Did you? Um, called Guest House Paradiso that Rick and I wrote for ourselves. Yeah. And I directed it. And oh, it's just endless months of meetings, mm. constantly describing things. And I thought, well, I, I can spend my time better than this. I think it takes a particular kind of mind directing. I don't think it's mine. If I can drag you back to music for a second, I hate this because mm. it's like the teen mags who say, what's your favourite colour? It's brown. If you, no, what, what's your go-to music? Who, what's, what, would, what would you play if you were just, if you were now driving in a car on your own, not having to entertain anybody, mm. and you were listening to a piece of music, what would you choose? One of my favourite bands in the world are a band called The Bothy Band. Mm who are an Irish band from the 70s, and a, a guy called Donald Lunny, who is the sort of mainstay of the band. And uh, Donald invented the idea of backing tunes. Mm -hmm. Every instrument played the melody, and perhaps a baran would play some kind of rhythm. But Donald invented the idea of backing them with some kind of rhythmic counterpoint. And the track, the Kesh Jig, is just a sublime kind of roller coaster of passion. Very passionate music. to keep up with the kids mm. for far too long listening to their music and kept getting them to make me mixtapes of in the days when we had tapes and uh, I realized far too late that uh, I, I didn't need to learn any new stuff <laughs> that there was so much more old stuff Bob Dylan had a radio program once called Bob's themed hour or something mm. and uh he, he responded to some criticism of him playing mostly old stuff and he made the point so that Everything is old. As soon as it's made, it's old. Old stuff is what everything is. And there's an awful lot of it to choose from. So you can't be had up for not listening to something that was made a minute ago rather than something that was made five years ago or 100 years ago. A, I think a lot of, I'm using the word pop music or popular music, yeah. is for young people about to fall in love. And I'm a very, very old person clinging to life. So this is a sort of slightly different audience because I've got different needs from a 16-year-old who hopes that the person across the room will see her and love her dearly. Yeah. But I can remember my parents, although mummy was very good about the Beatles, could remember all their names and thought they were tremendous boys, although George <laughs> Harrison needed to be given some Horlicks to fatten him up. But apart from that, and I remember <laughs> my father thinking the Rolling Stones are rather marvellous, but they were literally out of touch did he? with us. Good grief. He did. I don't know why. He suddenly thought, this is a very good band. <laughs> I once left a copy of um, Led Zepp 4. I'd played it on the family record player, you know, the one that looked like a suitcase, and made the mistake of leaving it out. <laughs> and my dad found it and put a note on it and said, yes, Adrian, but what does it all mean? Oh, no! <laughs> 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 oh, Aid, I wish we could talk on. We're not allowed to talk on, Aid. Oh, no, you're not. No, we want to talk to you for three or four no. other hours. But we're going to have to come to a close at some stage because we want to play some of the music that you've mentioned and um, we want to be with you. We know where you are, Aid. So as soon as we're going to yeah. close down this, this little podcast, you're going to get in the we're car. We're getting in the car and we're driving straight down to see you. Pack the port in the boot. It would be rude not to. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we would really love you to suggest something to play us out of this episode. Well, I think we should um, return to my youth and play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. I know it's a kind of um, something that grates against me because I was made to listen to it. And it's a bit of a cliche in itself, isn't it, people talk about it? But it's actually a, a stonker, isn't it? Absolutely. Should we suggest the second movement then? Because I don't want those first arpeggios to bring a wrinkle onto your brow of the first movement. Should we suggest the second movement, which has some joy? With a bit more blood in it. (laughs) I don't want to relax. (laughs) Certainly not. Thank you so much for being with us on Joanna and the Maestro. Thanks, Aid. Oh, thank you very much for having me. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills, our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Requiem Mass in D minor, K626, Third Movement, Dies Irae. Written by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Performed by the Amor Artist Orchestra and the Amor Artist Chorus. Conducted by Johannes Sommery. The record label was X5 Music Group. 303 written by Crispin Mills and Alonza Bevan, performed by Kula Shaker. The publisher was Hoodoo Music Limited and record label was Sony Music Entertainment UK. Jazz Delicious Hot Disgusting Cold, written by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and performed by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. The publisher was EMI Music Publishing and record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. The Wheels on Fire, written by Bob Dylan and Rick Danko. Performed by Julie Driscoll and Adrian Edmondson. The publisher was B. Feldman & Co. And the record label was Spaghetti Recordings. The Kesh Jig, performed by the Bothy Band. The record label was Polydor, licensed by Mulligan Music. Moonlight Sonata, Second Movement. Ludwig van Beethoven. Performed by Igor Kotliarevsky. The record label was Classical Records.